Hi, and welcome to the Marketing Essentials Podcast. Our unique team helps small businesses grow by providing essential marketing expertise. Thank you for joining us for part two of our podcast with Chris Butler of Entanglement.com. Um, progressive profiling is, is a term that's thrown about in the marketing automation space. What that really means is um, gathering information over time about the prospect that, that, that helps you to define whether or not they're a good fit. Right. So it's it's asking questions through different touch points that give you a better sense of fit over time. And it's just the stuff you need to know. We're not being invasive uh, for the sake of uh, just knowing more. We, we're asking for only those things that we know are going to help us better uh, categorize the prospect. And that it t- typically is done over time. It's not like you have one big Uber form where you say to somebody, hey, if you're, if you're a prospect, <laughs> tell me all these things and, and yeah, we'll figure you, it out. No one would ever fill it out. Exactly, exactly. So we're looking for, you know, um, over the lifetime of of someone's experience on your site prior to becoming um, an actual uh, contact or or an actual lead, um, you know, can we ask them through gated content, through subscription forms, through that sort of thing um, for, you know, all the different fields that we might need to know. And with our clientele, it tends to be anywhere from like 12 12 to 20 fields typically, Um, you know, anything from... Uh, the title to the type of organization they are to the size of organization, their location, um, their typical budget for that type of work, um, you know, their familiarity with um, ways that uh, someone might define their expertise, et cetera, that that sort of thing that just gives you a better sense of, hey, is this person worth following up on or not? Yeah. Um, it allows you to evaluate fit. Let's uh, let's pause there because I think there may be a couple of questions. I have a mm-hmm. quick question. So, Chris, you yeah. mentioned um, getting the prospect to engage with the website, take that action, which is super important. Um, and you mentioned forms. Are you seeing any trends with websites that are maybe moving? You know, forms are important, but are there other ways to get people to engage with your website? Well, sure. Um, you know, it, it really depends on what kinds of campaigns offsite you're running. Um, there might be, uh, for instance, a podcast um, is difficult to sort of coordinate with a typical form interaction because subscribing to podcasts happens in a completely different way. There's different technology at play, different devices. Um, and so you need to find ways to get people to connect. So with a podcast, for example, you might be looking at the analytics provided to you from a variety of different um, podcasting platforms and seeing what you can actually take action on. It typically isn't personalized data, um, but you might end up sending out surveys related to your podcast and getting people's response over email directly. So there's no forms involved in that. Um, social media, of course, would be an entire category around that. Um, uh, social media advertising would be a secondary category that I would see um, where you have engagement that's uh, looked at, understood and measured in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, that definitely, that makes sense. Yeah, so there's a ton. I mean, typically, though, I would say that within the uh, business-to-business website uh, world, you know, especially for the the expertise-driven marketing, forms and email... Um, are kind of the go-to. It's it's the most precise way to get the uh, the right message to the right person at the right time, mm-hmm. um, and you know whether that's t- you to the prospect or the prospect back to you. It typically is governed 
earned by email and website content. So yeah, what, what's next? Well, let me let me get into structure then, because I think that's going to be the most unique perspective uh, that will, <clears throat> I think, shape the listeners perspective on how to design for this context in a different way within aesthetics though because i I do want to mention that the aesthetic side really i'm looking at two things i mentioned before that i want to get to the most objective approach to aesthetics and and not you know debate whether or not someone's color choice uh is suitable or um you know their aesthetic preferences align with mine that's not what it's about it's not about what someone finds beautiful versus what i find beautiful it's about uh, how we treat visual information. Specifically, I'm asking, is the content prioritized in, d- in the design or have they paid more attention to decorating the container? Mm. What I see uh, time and again is that people see, uh, when it's their business, the site as the opportunity to finally be creative, to do something that uh, you know helps them express themselves um, to the detriment, really, of expressing the purpose of the site and understanding the experience of the prospect. Excuse so if me. they so, want to be creative, they should take up like a hobby, like painting. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, um, I've mentioned this story, and Justin, I think you and I have talked about it, but um, when I was in school, so this is 15 years ago, um, there was this video that made its rounds on the on the internet, and it was called The Real Truth, and it was this sort of send-up of, of uh, the advertising world, for spe- specifically with commercials. And it was about this kid who had gotten his first directing gig making, making a commercial, and he's clearly, like, out of his element. He's, yeah. you know, 22, and he's trying to design this art school uh, commercial, and, you know, he's being hounded by suits and all these requirements, and he's not handling it well. And there's a scene where these two uh, business uh, guys come in, you know, they're, they're uh, made distinct by their suits. Everyone else is just dressing much more hip, you know. And they walk in and they start telling him how to position the camera, etc. and, you know, where to cut. And, and he's sort of just trying to uh, get them to go away. And one guy says, hey, do you mind if I take a look through the camera? And he says, well, I guess not. And the guy says, look, I think you should go in a little tighter and uh, possibly cut at, at this angle. And, you know, and the, uh, someone objects to this and he says, listen, this uh, aside from choosing the color of my minivan, this is my only creative act this year. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I think that what that's indicating is that we all have this need you know, to express ourselves, to have some inner need met that is just entirely inappropriate to have met in this context. Um, and so aesthetics, yeah, we need to divorce our, our understanding of how aesthetics work in this context from what we like, what we want, what we want to see. And then the other side of it is visual complexity. And the question I ask is, does the design place a minimal cognitive burden on prospects by keeping the visual information it presents to a minimum? Okay, um, That's especially important when it comes to um, certain aesthetic preferences because I've worked with uh, agencies where they've just got so much going on visually and none of it is actually actionable. It's just decoration. So there's a little bit of a blend between the first two, but even if it's information, the question is, is it necessary at that place? So that's especially uh, important on like portal type pages, like a homepage or an insights landing page, or even like a section landing page for uh, like a what we do section or a capabilities section where the the desire is to just put as much information there as possible um, to show people, look what we're capable of, look at what we're thinking about, you know, just sort of dazzle somebody. And And, and uh, I think that comes from inside thinking, you know, uh, you know, if you're trying to think about approaching your website from your prospects point of view, you're going to reduce, you're not going to add because, you know, they're not as interested in your knowledge as you think they are. (laughs) What they're coming to the site for is what's in this for me? What can I get out of it? And so when you start thinking that way 
from their point of view, you start reducing what you're doing instead of adding to it. Mm-hmm. That, that's exactly right. And, and that's sort of what governs this idea of prospect experience design. So I mentioned before, you know, prospect experience design, I think, can be best summarized in contrast to a basic definition of user experience design. So um, and, and I'm sure that there are people who would object to the way that I'm going to cate- uh, sort of describe this. But from my perspective, the simplest way of understanding user experience design is understanding it as the discipline of making it easy for users to do what they want to do. Yeah. Right um, now, design for the web and the complex array of interactions that occurs there—it really needs this, right? Because there's a million things that somebody could want to do or could be presented to do, and and uh, that's because the web is is not just a presentation of information; it's an environment in which information is created, exchanged, and acted upon. So, marketing is sort of a subset of that activity, and it requires its own unique variation upon the theme of intentional interaction design. You know, marketing has a smaller audience than the web at large and a smaller set of objectives and a much smaller set of specific actions it expects. And so that's where PX comes in. Prospect experience design is the discipline of making it easy for prospects to do those specific actions that you want them to do. Mm-hmm. Right? To do what you want them to do. And that, that means that you need to design pages that make it clear uh, about what you want people to do and, and really focus the actions. And so, yeah, like, click this button. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. You know, so, so I mentioned that structure is something that we look closely at. And, and let me describe to you what I mean there because structure, uh, my perspective on structure is really what inherits this whole PX idea. Um, my perspective on a, a marketing website is that the right design uh, has one measurable outcome, which is that it turns researchers into buyers. Right. A researcher is somebody that has a question that your content might be able to answer. They type it in someplace or maybe they're referred to you. Um, The first time they see your site, they're in that category of sort of still getting a lay of the land, figuring out if they're even in the right place. And what we want to do is graduate their attention through a process, through that predictable buyer stages of, you know, uh, researcher, evaluator and buyer. Researchers still asking questions, trying to figure out what they need. An evaluator might be comparing um, your what you can offer them versus what another firm might offer them. And then, of course, buyer is taking that action and self-identifying, saying, hey, I want to take that next step. So th- that's all going to be predicated on whether or not design pages are designed to make that, that process simple for a prospect. And so I call that whole idea of, of, of making it easy, a purposeful user flow. It's an intentional, directed flow of information and choices that you design into your website's most important positioning content, right? So we're not talking about blog posts here or uh, white papers, you know, that kind of stuff. That's where researchers live. They're going to school on your site. What we want to do is make sure that when they're ready to figure out um, who you are and whether or not they can pay you for something, that we direct them properly um, and guide them towards taking the actions we want them to take. Um, so we're going again from perception to action. Um, and it does that by offering a clear primary action to take on every single page. There's always a secondary action, but one clear primary action that will guide them forward to a, a better understanding of what it is that you do for money. Because again, in content marketing, most of their experience is going to be in figuring out if your expertise is right for them, and that's free. 
right? They get to read your blog post, read, listen to your podcast, whatever it is for free. And they're, they're going to school on your dime, your time. But eventually yeah. we have to take them to the next level and say, Hey, yeah, you, you've gotten a sense for our expertise. Now you, you value it. You believe that we're the right people for you. Um, but there's more and that comes through this structure and that's what they need to understand. Um, now the, the really critical thing about this, I said, it's limited to positioning pages, like your homepage, a capabilities landing page, um, pages that detail services you have or case, uh, case studies. I call all those positioning pages because they frame the intent of the business. Most prospects won't start their sessions on the website on pages like that. They'll start on a blog post, um, some kind of article because they found it that way. They've either been referred to it by social media or they found it through organic search. But what I've seen from the aggregate user data is something that we call a predictable orientation pattern. What what that means is that when someone lands on a blog post or an article like that for the first time, they do one of two things if they don't bounce right away. Um, they either move laterally to another piece of like content, like a, a related article, or they, they go home, basically. They go to the homepage or the about page because they ask a very predictable question, which is, what is this website? Who's responsible for this information? And it's at that point that we want to capture and redirect their attention so that they better understand what we're selling. Right. Because that that's something I think marketers are really squeamish about. Like we want to share our expertise in content marketing, but we're always squeamish about talking about what we do for money. And we got to let that go right away. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. Right. So the purposeful user flow, it starts on the homepage. It redirects attention to a capabilities landing page. Right. So what we do, um, that page needs to give somebody a clear outline of the different services that are offered. Um, that's the primary action there to learn more about one of those services. And from there, uh, they can read about that service. The primary action point there is to see how that service is applied in the real world, which is a case study. Um, and so let me just give you a few pointers on each one of those things, and then um, we can probably wrap there because that'll be a good amount of information, and, and you might have questions. So this is going to be really rote, and I'm going to I'm going to just narrate this step by step because uh, th there's some clear directives here that I think might make sense to people, um, and it would be better if it's just ordered numerically. So on the home page. This is really controversial with a lot of my clients, but once I explain it, they get on board. In my opinion, a homepage's job is not at all to tell anyone what's new, right? What I encounter over and over again is people think that their division of the organization needs to be at the top of the homepage because it's most important, or their blog post that's new needs to always be on the homepage because it's the new thing. The bottom line is the job of the homepage is to tell the prospect what's true about the organization, not what's new. And that means that there's one thing that's important to do on the homepage. If you can do this one thing, you can do other things. But if this one thing isn't done, then you've ruined your homepage. And that's articulating what you do. What you do, your positioning statement, is the most important thing that the homepage contains. Not your latest blog post, um, not the division that's uh, hot right now, um, not even uh, you know uh, the, the latest news where your thing was pu published in Inc. Magazine, whatever it is, it's what you do. Eight to 10 word positioning statement accompanied by a button to learn more that redirects that attention to a capabilities landing page. If that's all you put on the homepage, your homepage will work. It will be very effective. Wow. You can add other things. There are three other things I'd recommend you add in this order of priority. What you've done. You should also feature case studies of your best work. Um, you know That proves the applied value of your expertise. Ideally, those case studies are representative of work that you intend to sell in, in the future. So this isn't a place for name dropping. This is a place for making clear how you apply your expertise. Number three, it's what your clients say. So a happy client is always a better salesperson for you than you can be for yourself. It yep. doesn't matter 
what the context is or who we're talking about, that is always true. So let them provide the social proof your prospects need. So that's number three. Number four, it's what you say. Finally, if you want to feature um, the material that changes most frequently, like your marketing content, this is where you do it, but not before the other three things. That makes sense? Absolutely. I mean, I've been preaching that for a long time to my Preach clients. Preach it, Justin. Yes. Uh, absolutely. I mean, a positioning statement is key, you know. And if you can't tell somebody within a few seconds who you are, what you do, and why it matters to them, you've missed the mark, you know. They have to get that right away. I mean, we've talked in previous podcasts yeah, yeah. about you get about five to seven seconds to get their attention or before they bounce. I'm, cur- I'm curious to hear uh, Chris's take on... Uh, the the role of photography, images, video, on a website in general. What 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 do you what is your take on that? Well, you know, I have seen a few websites that I think are quite effective that are nothing but text. Um, but I don't think that level of austerity is necessary. You know, <laughs> I mentioned before that. Uh, I, I don't see any conflict between good design and good marketing. And so, what I would say, Bill, is that you know, imagery, um, video. Uh, typography, colors, the the visual language that you use on site, whatever form it takes. Um, What's most important is that it's appropriate to the brand, the way that the brand um, is understood and the way that the people who, excuse me, comprise the organization that's represented by that brand, that the way they want to express themselves in the world. So that's a, that's a subjective and personal decision uh, first. And then second, it, it, it's practical in that, um, you know, you might have a certain sensibility, but if people can't understand what it is you're doing, sure. or if it's getting in the way of communication, then it doesn't work. So I don't have any rules or any dogma when it comes to audio, video, um, photography, typography, colors, texture, any of that stuff, so long as that it doesn't impede communication. That makes sense. Um, I, I would go further to say that, look, if, you know, if it, it needs to be consistent, um, which is, you know, if, if you want imagery to go along with your, uh, written content or, uh, you know, you should, you should come up with a, uh, a sort of general voice for that. So what you don't want to do is mix some stock imagery with some homegrown photography, with some weird illustrations, <laughs> with some back of the napkin sketches, you know, you want to find one way of doing it. Sure. I sure. think. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's, you know, it's, that's part of your brand. You know, exactly. the, the, the visual voice, the written voice, colors, typography, your visual identity, you know, your logo. It's, it's all got to kind of work together like, you know, the different members of an orchestra. And, yep. you know, if you land on a page that isn't playing the same tune as the other pages, you know, that can be jarring, you know, in regards to user experience. And it can yeah. take the person out of that uh, purposeful flow that you talked about. Right. Right. And, and before I, w- I want to explain the capabilities landing page, but one other thing I'll say about this is that I would venture to guess that all four of us, the three of you and myself, we've all been doing this kind of work long enough to see something that we love that brought us to this work in the, in the first place become commoditized, some, mm. particularly some kind of craft, whether it's, you know, uh, actual, you know, design with a capital D, you know, page layout, uh, typography, photography, bill, whatever it is, it, it's gotten cheaper um, mm-hmm. And that's because the sure. tools have become more readily available. The problem there is that that doesn't, it, what it hasn't changed is the necessity for good craft. Um, and so what I've seen is that um, the, the, the commoditization of photography, for example, the fact that I can um, pull up a picture of just about anything I want 
any idea I can come up with for free if I'm willing to be uh, sleazy and steal it, <laughs> or yeah. I, you know, for for pretty cheap if I want to buy it from an online purveyor of stock imagery. Um, it doesn't change the fact that honestly, a really good photo can go a long way to towards um, creating the right experience uh, in the right context. And in most cases, that really good photograph is uniquely created for that purpose, in my opinion. Um, so yes, you can get images for cheap, and uh, that has changed the landscape. But what it's really done is it's cre- it's it's increased everyone's appetite for bad photography. Mm. Um, but it ha- but it hasn't changed the fact that good photography is always better. It's, it's always more effective. And I would add to that that, yes, uh, a lot of what we do has been commoditized. You know, there's stock sure. photography out there. There's templated sites. There's sites you can build yourself. There's all these things. But one of the things that has not been commoditized and I think is necessary in what we're talking about here is expertise sure. and experience. You can't yep. commoditize that. And when you're talking about having all of these resources at your fingertips, there's a big difference between having them at your fingertips and knowing exactly how to use them in a way that benefits your your client, you know, and benefits your prospects. Yeah, I mean, one way to think about it is if you're a photographer, like if you're a designer, a web designer, you're not you're not competing with Wix.com or Squarespace. If you're a photographer, you're not competing with Getty Images or see if something even cheaper. What you're competing with are two things. You're competing with mediocrity and everyone else's tolerance for mediocrity. <laughs> exactly. um, and, and so what that means is that if, if you've probably seen this a million times where you start working with a client, they actually want to pay you for what you do well and they understand its value. And the reason they do is because they've been burned in the past. They thought they could go cheap. They realized it didn't work. They wasted that time and that money and now they're ready to get serious. And so they need the expertise that you have, but they also need the craft that you love. And oh, yeah. it's it, again, it, it, photography, I keep coming back to it because I think it's the one, it's the one that has been mistakenly cheapened the most. Um, even, even web design, like, you know, Justin and I have been doing that for a really long time and there's a million places you can go to spin up a website right now for yep. cheap. Most of them are so limited that what, as soon as people do it, they realize that they've made a mistake. Um, and so that, that feedback loop tends to be quicker, but with photography people, it's either really, really expensive or like people think that they should never have to pay for it or they settle for something terrible. In between there is this huge range of expertise. And I have found that when a photo is needed, you need a photographer. You don't need a photo. You need the photographer. You need the eye. You don't need the the, the actual file. Right? I couldn't agree more with you. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome, though. I, I'm, I'm ready to sell you anytime. Here we go. I'll get on the phone. Okay, so, so let, 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 let's go over the capability designing page. So, right, they read the positioning statement on the homepage. They say, oh, that's really interesting. Learn more. They click the, that button. They go to a page called What We Do, right, or uh, Our Services, Our Capability, something like that. And that page's job is to give somebody a little bit more of a sense of place, right? Um, where in the market are you? What's your mission? What's what? What do you do? What don't you do? We're looking for about a hundred to 250, uh, 250 words of indexable content. It needs to tell the prospect whether they're in the right place, but not give them an encyclopedic overview of everything you do. Um, what I see, particularly in the creative space, is the sort of cheesecake factory menu of every possible form yeah. their expertise can take. Yeah. That's a big mistake because what that immediately tells somebody is, "Hey, I'm about as transactional as it can get. I'll do whatever you want." That's not yeah. that's not what you want to sell. Next, a client testimonial, social proof. This testimonial should really connect to your mission. So you want to choose it pro- appropriately. It's somebody talking about how the relationship with you has helped them achieve their goals. It's about the impact they've uh, they've had through working with you. Number four, this is the fourth order of priority if you're imagining this as an outline, but it's the first 
action that a prospect can take is an easily scannable list of individual services, right? So it's this, this is where we want them to go next, to learn in more detail about how you shape or structure your expertise. Mm. Um, most people who sell expertise, they don't sell things a la carte. They don't say, well, you can buy thing A, thing B, or thing C. Some people do. Um, but typically what they sell is an engagement that comprises a variety of disciplines. Um, and it's important, I think, to differentiate those disciplines because they, d- a discipline uniquely tends to have a unique problem it's trying to solve, unique personnel that's involved, unique process, a unique outcome, unique way of measuring that. And most of the time, a good prospect is coming in thinking they only need that one thing. And what you would do over and over again is say, actually... What you need is a, a small piece of this bigger picture. And by identifying it individually here, you're, you're, you're catering to their perspective, but then you're showing them right away that it's a bigger piece of the pie. So that's what we want them to choose. If they're ready to go, though, the secondary action is what I call buyer-friendly call to action. Just a form that says, hey, let's talk about your project. Let's set up a meeting, that sort of thing. So ideally, if this page is successful, someone reads quickly, they understand they're in the right place, they've heard from someone else that uh, you're, you are who you say you are and can do what you can, say you can do, then they've chosen from the list to learn more on a service detail page. And that's where they go next is uh, you know, a, a page designed just to tell them more about that individual service. Uh, you can call it whatever you want. Um, we're looking for a little bit more content here, 250 to 500 words of indexable content, enough just to explain what's the unique goal, the unique process, the unique outcomes and measurables of that service. Again, a client testimonial. Ideally, you're choosing one directly connected to this specific service or discipline. Number three, the primary action of this page is to get somebody to scan a list of related case studies, right? How we applied this service in the real world and to choose one to learn more about. And then again, if they're ready to go, they don't need to get take the next step. The secondary action is a buyer-friendly form. Well, if you, if you liked what you heard on today's podcast, you can check out our other podcasts on marketingessentialsteam.com. We have a podcast page where we published all our previous podcasts. You can also subscribe to them on iTunes. You can check out uh, more information about us on our Facebook page at Marketing Essentials Team. And uh, you can contact us through the Facebook page if you mm-hmm. have questions about anything related to marketing or photography or social media or uh, design and branding. Yes. Uh, we also have a Facebook group, a, a private group, um, that you can um, uh, apply to, and that has to do with marketing as well, but I'm going to let Alicia explain a little more in detail about what that is. So you can find the Facebook group at Little Roadie Marketing Support Group, and it's basically it's a community for local businesses, small to medium businesses, and other marketing professionals to kind of just have an ongoing conversation where we can post about, businesses can post about their marketing struggles and challenges, success stories, and then to kind of um, converse with other local marketing professionals and get some advice. And yeah, it's a it's a great community. It's uh, it's fun to see some of the the wins that are happening on a weekly basis for certain businesses, and yep. also to be able to help each other out. Um, mm-hmm. So it is by uh, it is a closed group, so you would have to ask for permission. But as Alicia says, we don't turn away anybody. So as of right now, we'll let you in. <laughs> <laughs> and finally. Uh, Justin touched on the podcast. You can see the podcast uh, through our website. But if you're one of those people that likes to listen in your car as you're driving around, uh, we also have the podcast available through iTunes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just look for the Marketing Essentials team, and you'll find it there. And we'd like to give a shout-out to our venue host today, which is Rooms and Works. 
They're a co-working space in Providence, and you can find them online at leadwork.com. We'd like to thank Chris Butler for joining us this week. And uh, if you'd like to know a little bit more about him, you can check out the link in our show notes, or you can find him at newfangled.com. Thank you for joining us, and see you next week.